I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. <laughs> I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. Okay, so this is uh, my attempt at doing a podcast. Uh, I actually did this once before, which I had this idea that I would go back through my various songs and I would talk about them and their meaning or why I wrote them or whatever. And I did one of those and published it and then promptly lost interest, and which is very typical for me. So every time I sign on to Spotify, it's always reminding me that I have this one podcast out there, which really just ended up being something with me kind of interviewing uh, Hillary on the phone about the song Sent Honeybee. I thought it was funny, but I mean, does it really need to be on the World Wide Web? Maybe not. But in the meantime, I have started writing stories. I originally started just, I thought with just some of the stories from my childhood. And part of the interest I had in that was first just understanding my childhood, what made me the way I am, and my family being the way it is. You don't often get a lot of the story behind the story on um, our family and family dramas and things like that. So I thought I would just try to kind of think through some of those things and talk them over with my dad and that sort of thing. It's, and it was it was good. So I've done three of those so far. And the one I'm, you're about to hear is The Farm. And that's the first one that I wrote. And uh, then there are a couple more on, on, in the pipeline. And I'm hoping um, I can get motivated enough to do uh, enough for a book. The other thing I've been doing is just recording conversations with my dad and my stepmom and with my mother-in-law and hope to do that with my Aunt Carol because their voices are unique and they won't always be with us. So um, I have actually I have a, con a collection on, of files in my uh, Google Drive with old um, recordings of my Nana Mary and uh, Hillary's ma uh, grandmother Nana, uh, Mary as well. And those will come to light uh, in the family, I guess, at some point. So here you go, without further ado, The Farm. As I look back on my childhood, growing up on a five-acre farm outside of Jefferson, the enduring mystery for me is why my general recollection of that time is so idyllic, but my specific memories almost always involve me getting hurt. Once, my dad showed me how to grab the electric fence in the front pasture without getting shocked. You just had to grab it when the light on the fence post wasn't lit. I didn't get the timing quite right and, of course, got zapped. Another time, it was winter, and we had just got one of those snowfalls that is the closest the Willamette Valley gets to a white Christmas. Lonely, wet clumps of grainy snow lay melting on the dark grass. My mother bundled my sister and me into our coats and mittens, and we kicked through the snow, making snowballs and lopsided snowmen. We were probably four and three, 
My dad came home, his headlights curving into the long drive. He parked the car. It pinged in the snow-silent dusk. Happily, he tossed a snowball my way, which hit me square in the face. I ran to my mommy crying while he watched Denise making a snow angel. Another time, he was showing me the barrel full of dog food so I could start earning my 10 cent allowance. When he took off the lid, a mouse jumped up on my hand, ran up my arm before jumping into the shadows of the barn. Once, I took a rope up into the giant cottonwood at the entrance to our property, tied one end to a branch, and then went back down to the bottom and began climbing up the tree like Batman from the TV series. Halfway up, the knot unraveled, and I bounced through the branches to the bottom, knocking the wind out of myself. I came staggering and gasping toward the front yard where my mother was gardening. Her only comment I remember was, David, stop goofing around. I've seen the old photos and read my parents' journals and letters. I know the reality is that this time on the farm started with hippie dreams of living off the land, growing vegetables and raising sheep, for Denise and me, we lived in a house full of toys and books. We spent our days playing with dolls and toy guns, chasing chickens, even once managing to get on the back of Freckles the horse for a short gallop through the backyard before falling off. At some point, my parents also fell off the horse they were riding. She found life on the farm lonely and boring. Reminiscing later, it evoked comparisons with her cold, lonely childhood in England. It was beautiful, but it rained and rained. My father's business degree got him a job at State Farm Insurance in Salem, but the long days of making cold calls on the phone surrounded by men smoking cigars left him desperately unhappy. He longed to be a gentleman farmer and felt most at peace working around the farm and taking care of the animals. He decided he could make more money working at the paper mill in Albany, but my mom did not envision herself married to a blue collar worker. Their dreams faded, then diverged, and by April 1978, they were separated and later divorced. At the back of our property was a dense stand of oak trees, which for some reason had never been cleared for farming. When my parents purchased the house, actually my mother's parents first bought it and later sold it to them, there was already a tree house back there. It was dark and dilapidated, covered in moss and smelling of urine. My mom used to pack me a lunchbox, and I would spend hours back there, engaged in imaginary battles, or just lying on the second floor platform, staring at the sky through the trees. One day, my friend Carrie and I started heading through the field toward the forest. In the field was our bull, Oscar the Grouch. We were pretty sure we could skirt the edge of the field without the bull noticing. Unfortunately, Oscar spotted us and we ended up running full tilt toward the back fence. We got over the fence, playtime now forgotten, and we started shouting for help. Our neighbor, Willie, was a mean old guy. He got us into this situation since he wouldn't let us walk through his property. We kept shouting and eventually my dad came striding through the field and walked us back home through Willie's property. I just remember being in awe of my dad saving us and standing up to Willie. Later, Willie got his revenge. I was very sensitive to poison oak, 
and Willie started a big burn pile full of the stuff. The smoke rolled over our house, and I began itching and gasping. I'm sure he didn't do it on purpose, but had he known, I can imagine him rubbing his hands together and chuckling. Oscar the Grouch ended up as hamburger and steaks in our freezer, not long after. Another animal that really didn't like me was our billy goat. I remember getting knocked off the pasture gate when Billy rammed it. I had a better relationship with our Springer Spaniels. Henry and Tilly and their son Danny were amazing dogs. Most of the photos from this era feature one or more dogs pushing their noses into the middle of the scene. I think Tilly was later disgraced for killing chickens. I'm not sure whatever happened to Henry, but years later he was immortalized when I named my first son Henry. My sister Denise was less than two years younger than me, and we had a difficult adolescence, no doubt due in part to our parents separating. For a long time as an adult, the thing I remember my mom saying was, you loved Denise when she was a baby, but she didn't like you from the start. I think this contributed to my later antipathy toward her. But as an adult, I went through photos from this era, and they're filled with Denise and me playing happily together. In this photo, we are smiling at the camera while sitting in the living room playing with dolls. In another photo, I've dressed her up in my cowboy hat and chaps, and she's brandishing two six-shooters. We're laying on the grass in the shade of our backyard. We're parked in front of a Christmas tree surrounded by wrapping paper and presents. So seeing those photos, I realized that Denise was for many years my best friend. I look back on our teen years, filled with fighting and bickering and I'm able to see that we were acting out on a child level, a conflict between our parents. Now that we are adults, it means a lot to be able to forgive each other for how horrible we were as teens and remember how much we loved each other when we were small. I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. 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 It's amazing to think back on what our lives were like in the 70s and 80s, growing up in a time before helicopter parenting and before, um, you know, continual connection through uh, cell phones and all the rest. We were latchkey kids, which meant we would get home after school about 3.30 and maybe not see mom until she got home at 6 or 7. And there was a lot that could go on in those couple of hours 
of unmonitored uh, mischief and boredom. Um, and, you know, just the running wild in a town like Jefferson where, you know, you could go out on your bike on a Saturday morning and maybe not get home until it was dark. And mom just didn't know what she did. And for the most part, we just farting around and having fun, getting into mischief. But, I mean, there was also just, yeah, it was uh, um, dangerous in a way. <laughs> but at the same time, it was a, a lot of freedom involved. You know, I mentioned in this um, story that I'm about to read, a Shotgun, and we as kids had access to a lot of guns. We didn't have any guns at my house. By the time I we moved to Jefferson, I wasn't my dad wasn't living with us and his twenty two and shotgun and all the rest were with him. But my friends all had guns. Their parents did. And um the guy Nick mentioned in the story, uh he and I would take the guns out for all sorts of reasons. Probably the dumbest thing that we did, uh, many, many dumb things was we were in Mrs. Loy's class and we were supposed to, to uh, dress up like historical figures of some sort. And so Nick and I had the idea that we would um, dress up like Indians. Um, and to do that, we thought we should have a headdress with feathers in it. So we took his shotgun and out behind uh, Jefferson on the other side of the train tracks, there's quite a lot of stands of, you know, old oak trees and things like that. Undeveloped stuff. It's probably all housing developments now. But we went out there in search of birds, and we just started blasting away at these uh, birds and then gathering up the remains for our, our headdresses. Well, all of a sudden, a guy comes barging in, this adult man who knows how old he was but um we of course were just you know 13 maybe and accused us of shooting his his truck like we had a scatter shot from the shotgun it pelted his vehicle as he was driving by so he grabbed us and i think he took the gun away first and took us to the police station and then um, Nick was supposed he was supposed to call his parents, and they were supposed to come down and pick him up. I don't know exactly what happened with that, but my mom never found out, and so I just kind of went home after that. And I'm not sure exactly what happened with our our project to dress up like Indians, but um, you know that was fun when you were 13, and. Um, so, yeah, this story about the St. Anne Raft is, uh, is dear to me just because that, that time just represents complete freedom and lack of responsibility and a time when, you know, the line between my imagination and, and fantasy and reality was non-existent. And so just floating down like uh, 
Tom Sawyer or or whoever you want to imagine was was actually some just a reality for us. A drag, you know, get down to, close to the bridge, pull the boat out of the water, and drag it through the filbert orchard, or hazelnuts, our neighbor's place, and across the street, and I'd be home again. And uh, so um, this is the story, and um, let's see how it goes. Sandy Am Raft. It was autumn. I was 13. My mother drove us to Salem in her tired red Buick to do some clothes shopping for the new school year. We went into Myron Frank, a slightly upscale department store, where my mom was hoping to provide my sister and me with an extra boost by sending us to school well-dressed. I dragged my heels through the store, pushing between the overstuffed displays of new clothes with their new smell and crackling static. Later, as we came through the revolving doors into the street, staff were setting up a sidewalk sale. Beach towels, summer blouses, and some sad pool toys in scruffy boxes lined the entrance. My eyes passed lazily over the stacks until they stopped on a rubber raft. The box featured two bright children paddling happily on a lake. Mom, I want this raft. I stirred her... Mom, I want this raft. I steered her over to the box, tucked behind the piles of unwanted bathing suits and folding recliners. How much is it? She had just spent too much on clothing and probably wasn't eager to add more to her credit card. It was $21, and I promised to pay her back for my summer job money, earned mostly picking strawberries. Back home, I spread it out on the lawn and started blowing it up with my mouth puffing into the one-way valve until fireworks danced in front of my eyes. Although it claimed to be a two-person raft, it was just the size for one 13-year-old boy once fully inflated. This didn't stop me from inviting my friend Nick to float down the Sanium River that passed by our house. We begged a ride up to Greensbridge and took turns blowing it up before pushing off into the water and settling into the raft with our long limbs hanging over the sides. The bridge crossed the North Fork of the Sandy Am, and we floated for about two hours through fields and groves of cotton trees before it joined up with the South Fork, broadened and slowed, flowing sluggishly another couple of hours to Jefferson Bridge. On these long floats, we seldom saw another human. The lonely waterways meandered through fields now fallow as fall advanced. We could sneak into the fields and steal carrots the harvesters had missed, crunch on them as we floated, leaving a trail of green circling behind us. There was very little excitement in the early years of floating the river. Later, as our teen years hardened, we started bringing a filched bottle of whiskey, or once, a shotgun. Those long floats marked the slow passage of my life from carefree childhood to a fraught adolescence. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the forks and camp there for the night in an ugly little pump. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the rivers and camp there for the night in an ugly little pup tent. One night, we shared the riverside with two brown horses, and when a lightning storm blew in during the night, 
our raft banged against the tent while the panicked horses wheeled and whinnied around us. In all those years floating, right through my final summer after high school, I never took the raft past Jefferson Bridge. Another four hours would have taken us to the Willamette River, then who knows how long to the Columbia and out to sea. We could have caught the North Pacific gyre and been swept down to Mexico. Instead, the old raft was tucked away on a shelf in my dad's garage, much scraped and punctured and badly repaired. It's probably there still, smelling faintly of the mu- it's, it's probably there still, smelling faintly of the musty Sanium River, the squelching mud dried to grit in the rubber folds. That raft bobs through many of my best memories of childhood. It is large in my memory, floating low in the water, with tiny bubbles coming up the side from a leak. If I could stretch it out on the lawn, it would probably be a small and shriveled thing, not the glorious container of my memories, which held me through my passage from childhood to my larger yet somehow diminished future. Sani Am Raft It was autumn. I was 13. My mother drove us to Salem in her tired red Buick to do some clothes shopping for the new school year. We went into Myron Frank, a slightly upscale department store, where my mom was hoping to provide my sister and me with an extra boost by sending us to school well-dressed. I dragged my heels through the store, pushing between the overstuffed displays of new clothes with their new smell and crackling static. Later, as we came through the revolving doors into the street, staff were setting up a sidewalk sale. Beach towels, summer blouses, and some sad pool toys in scruffy boxes lined the entrance. My eyes passed lazily over the stacks until they stopped on a rubber raft. The box featured two bright children paddling happily on a lake. Mom, I want this raft. I stirred her... Mom, I want this raft. I steered her over to the box, tucked behind the piles of unwanted bathing suits and folding recliners. How much is it? She had just spent too much on clothing and probably wasn't eager to add more to her credit card. It was $21, and I promised to pay her back for my summer job money, earned mostly picking strawberries. Back home, I spread it out on the lawn and started blowing it up with my mouth puffing into the one-way valve until fireworks danced in front of my eyes. Although it claimed to be a two-person raft, it was just the size for one 13-year-old boy once fully inflated. This didn't stop me from inviting my friend Nick to float down the Sanium River that passed by our house. We begged a ride up to Greensbridge and took turns blowing it up before pushing off into the water and settling into the raft with our long limbs hanging over the sides. The bridge crossed the North Fork of the Sandy Am, and we floated for about two hours through fields and groves of cotton trees before it joined up with the South Fork, broadened and slowed, flowing sluggishly another couple of hours to Jefferson Bridge. On these long floats, we seldom saw another human. The lonely waterways meandered through fields now fallow as fall advanced. We could sneak into the fields and steal carrots the harvesters had missed, crunch on them as we floated, leaving a trail of green circling behind us. 
There was very little excitement in the early years of floating the river. Later, as our teen years hardened, we started bringing a filched bottle of whiskey, or once, a shotgun. Those long floats marked the slow passage of my life from carefree childhood to a fraught adolescence. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the forks and camp there for the night in an ugly little pump. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the rivers and camp there for the night in an ugly little pup tent. One night, we shared the riverside with two brown horses, and when a lightning storm blew in during the night, our raft banged against the tent while the panicked horses wheeled and whinnied around us. In all those years floating, right through my final summer after high school, I never took the raft past Jefferson Bridge. Another four hours would have taken us to the Willamette River, then who knows how long to the Columbia and out to sea. We could have caught the North Pacific gyre and been swept down to Mexico. Instead, the old raft was tucked away on a shelf in my dad's garage, much scraped and punctured and badly repaired. It's probably there still, smelling faintly of the It's it's probably there still, smelling faintly of the musty Sanium River, the squelching mud dried to grit in the rubber folds. That raft bobs through many of my best memories of childhood. It is large in my memory, floating low in the water, with tiny bubbles coming up the side from a leak. If I could stretch it out on the lawn, it would probably be a small and shriveled thing, not the glorious container of my memories which held me through the, my passage from childhood to my larger yet somehow diminished future. It's amazing to think back on what our lives were like in the 70s and 80s, growing up in a time before helicopter parenting and before... Um, you know, continual connection through uh, cell phones and all the rest. We were latchkey kids, which meant we would get home after school about 3.30 and maybe not see mom until she got home at 6 or 7. And there was a lot that could go on in those couple of hours of unmonitored uh, mischief and boredom. Um, and, you know, just the running wild in a town like Jefferson where you know you could go out on your bike on a Saturday morning and maybe not get home until it was dark and mom just didn't know what she did and for the most part we we're just farting around and having fun getting into mischief but I mean there was also just yeah it was uh um dangerous in a way <laughs> But at the same time, it was a, a lot of freedom involved. You know, I mentioned in this um, story that I'm about to read, a shotgun. And we as kids had access to a lot of guns. We didn't have any guns at my house. By the time I we moved to Jefferson, I wasn't, my dad wasn't living with us. And his 22 and shotgun and all the rest were with him. But my friends all had guns. Their parents did. And um, the guy, Nick, mentioned in the story, 
uh, he and I would take the guns out for all sorts of reasons. Probably the dumbest thing that we did, uh, many, many dumb things, was we were in Mrs. Loy's class and we were supposed to, to uh, dress up like historical figures of some sort. And so Nick and I had the idea that we would um, dress up like Indians. Um, and to do that, we thought we should have a headdress with feathers in it. So we took his shotgun and out behind uh, Jefferson on the other side of the train tracks, there's quite a lot of stands of, you know, old oak trees and things like that undeveloped stuff. It's probably all housing developments now. But we went out there in search of birds and we just started blasting away at these uh, birds and then gathering up the remains for our, our headdresses. Well, all of a sudden a guy comes barging in, this adult man who knows how old he was, but um, we of course were just, you know, 13 maybe. And accused us of shooting his his truck, like we had a scatter shot from the shotgun. It pelted his vehicle as he was driving by. So he grabbed us, and I think he took the gun away first, and took us to the police station. And then um, Nick. Was supposed, he was supposed to call his parents and they were supposed to come down and pick him up. I don't know exactly what happened with that, but my mom never found out. And so I just kind of went home after that. And I'm not sure exactly what happened with our, our project to dress up like Indians. But, um, you know, that was fun when you were 13. And um, so, yeah, this story about the Sanium raft is uh, is dear to me just because that that time just represents complete freedom and lack of responsibility and a time when you know the line between my imagination and and fantasy and reality was non-existent and so just floating down like uh, Tom Sawyer or or whoever you want to imagine was was actually some just a reality for us a drag you know get down to, close to the bridge pull the boat out of the water and drag it through the filbert orchard or hazelnuts our neighbor's place and across the street and I'd be home again and uh so um this is the story and um let's see how it goes I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. Sani Am Raft. It was autumn. I was 13. My mother drove us to Salem in her tired red Buick to do some clothes shopping for the new school year. We went into Myron Frank, a slightly upscale department store, 
where my mom was hoping to provide my sister and me with an extra boost by sending us to school well-dressed. I dragged my heels through the store, pushing between the overstuffed displays of new clothes with their new smell and crackling static. Later, as we came through the revolving doors into the street, staff were setting up a sidewalk sale. Beach towels, summer blouses, and some sad pool toys in scruffy boxes lined the entrance. My eyes passed lazily over the stacks until they stopped on a rubber raft. The box featured two bright children paddling happily on a lake. Mom, I want this raft. I stirred her... Mom, I want this raft. I steered her over to the box, tucked behind the piles of unwanted bathing suits and folding recliners. How much is it? She had just spent too much on clothing and probably wasn't eager to add more to her credit card. It was $21, and I promised to pay her back for my summer job money, earned mostly picking strawberries. Back home, I spread it out on the lawn and started blowing it up with my mouth puffing into the one-way valve until fireworks danced in front of my eyes. Although it claimed to be a two-person raft, it was just the size for one 13-year-old boy once fully inflated. This didn't stop me from inviting my friend Nick to float down the Sanium River that passed by our house. We begged a ride up to Greensbridge and took turns blowing it up before pushing off into the water and settling into the raft with our long limbs hanging over the sides. The bridge crossed the North Fork of the Sandy Am, and we floated for about two hours through fields and groves of cotton trees before it joined up with the South Fork, broadened and slowed, flowing sluggishly another couple of hours to Jefferson Bridge. On these long floats, we seldom saw another human. The lonely waterways meandered through fields now fallow as fall advanced. We could sneak into the fields and steal carrots the harvesters had missed, crunch on them as we floated, leaving a trail of green circling behind us. There was very little excitement in the early years of floating the river. Later, as our teen years hardened, we started bringing a filched bottle of whiskey, or once, a shotgun. Those long floats marked the slow passage of my life from carefree childhood to a fraught adolescence. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the forks and camp there for the night in an ugly little pump. Sometimes, we would get dropped off in the afternoon and float halfway to the confluence of the rivers and camp there for the night in an ugly little pup tent. One night, we shared the riverside with two brown horses, and when a lightning storm blew in during the night, our raft banged against the tent while the panicked horses wheeled and whinnied around us. In all those years floating, right through my final summer after high school, I never took the raft past Jefferson Bridge. Another four hours would have taken us to the Willamette River, then who knows how long to the Columbia and out to sea. We could have caught the North Pacific gyre and been swept down to Mexico. Instead, the old raft was tucked away on a shelf in my dad's garage, much scraped and punctured and badly repaired. It's probably there still, smelling faintly of the mu- it's, it's probably there still, smelling faintly of the musty Sanium River, the squelching mud dried to grit in the rubber folds. 
That raft bobs through many of my best memories of childhood. It is large in my memory, floating low in the water, with tiny bubbles coming up the side from a leak. If I could stretch it out on the lawn, it would probably be a small and shriveled thing, not the glorious container of my memories, which held me through the, my passage from childhood to my larger yet somehow diminished future. I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. <laughs> I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. Okay, so this is uh, my attempt at doing a podcast. Uh, I actually did this once before, which I had this idea that I would go back through my various songs and I would talk about them and their meaning or why I wrote them or whatever. And I did one of those and published it and then promptly lost interest, and which is very typical for me. So every time I sign on to Spotify, it's always reminding me that I have this one podcast out there, which really just ended up being something with me kind of interviewing uh, Hillary on the phone about the song Sent Honeybee. I thought it was funny, but I mean, does it really need to be on the World Wide Web? Maybe not. But in the meantime, I have started writing stories. I originally started just, I thought with just some of the stories from my childhood. And part of the interest I had in that was first just understanding my childhood, what made me the way I am, and my family being the way it is. You don't often get a lot of the story behind the story on um, our family and family dramas and things like that. So I thought I would just try to kind of think through some of those things and talk them over with my dad and that sort of thing is and it was it was good so I've done three of those so far and the one I'm you're about to hear is the farm and that's the first one that I wrote and uh, then there are a couple more on, on in the pipeline and I'm hoping um, I can get motivated enough to do uh, enough for a book the other thing I've been doing is just recording conversations with my dad and my stepmom and with my mother-in-law and hope to do that with my aunt carol because their voices are unique and they won't always be with us so um, i have actually I have a, a collection on of files in my uh, google drive with old um recordings of my nana mary and uh, hillary's ma uh grandmother nana, uh, mary as well and those will come to light uh, in the family i guess at some point so here you go, without further ado, The Farm.
I'm David Kerr, and this is my podcast. <laughs>